welcome to Radio Democracy. My name is Mark Jacobson. I'm Jim Lutis. And I'm Evelyn Farkas. We are three friends who met in the year 2000 on a trip to Germany sponsored by the German Marshall Fund and the German government. We drank a lot of beer and discussed democracy and security issues with other young national security wonks. Back then, we took democracy in America, in Europe, and around the world for granted, assuming it was prevailing against the autocratic alternatives. 21 years later, well, I don't think we even drink beer at this point. Democracy ain't doing that well, but we believe as firmly as ever that it's worth fighting for, and we're here to give you our insights. It's 4.05 p.m. in New York, 12.35 a.m. in Kabul, and 5.05 p.m. in Tokyo. Whatever time it is, wherever you are, this is Radio Democracy. I was waiting for Evelyn to be funny. Yeah, I was waiting too. No, it's going to come later. It's going to come in the course of the conversation. Okay. okay, all right. So I'm Jim Lutis, and uh, I want to talk today a little bit about uh, something we've heard a lot about in the last several years. But the topic is disinformation. That's the fraudulent use of information to shape American politics. Some of it's foreign disinformation, some of it's domestic disinformation. But I think most of the conversations we've had about disinformation the last couple of years miss one key point. Yes, disinformation poses a threat to democracy in the West. But if our response is simply to wage political warfare of our own against our foes, whether they're in Moscow, Tehran, or Beijing, then we've missed an opportunity to live up to the founding ideals of our republic and the never-ending pursuit of that more perfect union. In other words, we have to get our own house in order. So disinformation, propaganda, information, or political warfare, whatever you want to call it, it's as old as conflict and human relations. In the 20th century, they were used on societal and global scales to advance the causes of nations. The Soviet Union used these tools, as did the United States and our allies. Let me tell you a very quick story. In 1959, leaders of the Soviet Union were worried about West German military forces being integrated into NATO. So they sought to undermine the West's confidence in West Germany. So Soviet intelligence officers slipped across the old intra-German border and in the dead of night painted swastikas on former synagogues and other Jewish cultural centers in one city in the West. It was startling and offensive to see the symbol of Nazi power reemerge less than 15 years after the end of the war. In fact, once that taboo was broken, a wave of swastikas spread across Western Europe. Now, the Soviets were trying to foment division between West Germany and the NATO allies. And if any one of us were going to do that in the 1950s, we'd pick at the same scar in Germany's past. The Soviets didn't invent the lingering resentment, anger, and yes, suspicion of Germany. It existed. It existed because of the recent history so many had lived through. The Soviets simply sought to exploit that. The first CIA field manual from the late 1940s shines light on what the Soviets were doing. In a section titled simply, Exploit Existing Issues, the agency author wrote, quote, the skilled operator very rarely attempts to make a new fissure in the armor of the enemy's morale. He selects with care weaknesses which already exist and insists upon them with artful suggestion and reminder. Artful suggestion and reminder. 
I speak publicly about these issues frequently. And after sharing these stories, I typically ask the audience, okay, so if you were going to exploit an open wound in American society, what would you pick? And every time I've asked that question, the audience has been quick to blurt out race. And every time they've been right. In fact, going back at least until the 1930s, the Soviets, and more recently the Russians, have sought to exploit America's problems with race. In November 1960, African and Asian delegates to the United Nations received a threatening letter signed by the Ku Klux Klan. The offense, the, the letter was so terrible that one African delegate read it into the record of the General Assembly. The letter was headed, quote, White America Rejects a Bastardized United Nations. Now, I'm going to spare us all the language in the letter, but it strung together a stunning sequence of racial slurs and insults. Except the letter wasn't authored by the American KKK. It was authored by the Soviet KGB. In this instance, the Soviets sought to use America's historic problems with race and white supremacy to damage the United States in the eyes of the world. Now, as the 1960s progressed and the civil rights movement accelerated, the Soviet Union had a clear favorite in the American civil rights movement, and it was not Martin Luther King Jr., because he preached reconciliation and celebrated the founding ideals of the United States. The Soviets favored more militant leaders in the civil rights movement, because they seemed more likely to provoke an open race war in the United States. The KGB went so far as to spread gossip and innuendo about Reverend King, decrying him as a traitor to the black race until he was murdered. And in that moment, Soviet-sponsored newspapers began to portray Martin Luther King Jr. as a martyr. They hoped his death would trigger that long-sought-after racial violence, and they hoped to provoke real division, ethnic division, in the United States. More recently, the Russians have used the Black Lives Matter movement in protest against police brutality to spur animosity and division in American society. They've created online personas pretending to be African-American activists when they were actually Russian trolls operating from the Internet Research Agency, a Russian troll farm in St. Petersburg, Russia. Now, I could go on and on on this topic, but since 2014, the Russians have played both sides of issues like immigration, Islamic terrorism, whether NFL players should take a knee or stand for the flag, vaccines even before this pandemic, and the surveillance practices of the National Security Agency and the War on Terror, all while cultivating and even openly supporting secession movements in California and in Texas. Now, individually, these debating points don't threaten democracy, but collectively, they undermine the public's confidence in our democracy's ability to resolve long-standing issues. And that, left unaddressed, may pose a real threat to American democracy. Let me put it this way. Yes, we need to confront autocracy in a global battle for the information space. We need to be willing to put pressure on the information environment in Russia, in China, in Iran, in the same way they put pressure on ours. They have a lot of vulnerabilities, whether we're talking about autocracy, intimidation of the press, extrajudicial killings, and open aggression against neighbors. But if we can make American democracy more responsive to the issues that our adversaries so often exploit, we'd be doing things like defending public confidence in our electoral systems, ending systemic racism, 
getting dark money out of American politics, celebrating the things that bind us together as one people, restoring confidence in public and private institutions and the individuals who lead them, and affirming with one voice that the United States of America is one nation. So that's my pitch, Ev. Now, are you going to be funny? Yeah, because, uh, you know, the latest disinformation campaign that Facebook took down, it was Russian. And it told people, it claimed that coronavirus vaccines could turn people into chimpanzees. Yeah. That's not kind funny. Of funny. That, that's my nightmare. <laughs> it's kind of funny. And I think they, they've made various movies kind of, I don't know, Planet of the Apes. Um, but... Uh, uh, it was real. And they and Facebook took down 65 accounts, 243 Instagram accounts. Apparently, this company based in the UK was pushing it. And they told some of their French and German influencers to push it out, you know, to get more people to read it. Yeah. And they were reported by those French and German, or I guess a one influencer, I'm not sure if it was. They, they were YouTube influencers. There was an agency, an ad agency that was actually hiring talent. To, to tell these stories in their social media channels. And uh, again, because of the integrity of some of these folks coming forward and saying, hey, someone's hiring us to make up right. these bogus claims about vaccines, um, we know about it. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's kind of funny, but not really. Um, I, apparently, it doesn't seem to have, it doesn't seem to have really stuck. I don't think people are running around afraid that they're going to turn into chimpanzees, but it, but it fuels the general, you know, reluctance or aversion, certainly politiz politization of uh, mask wearing or sorry, a vaccination um, with regard to uh, addressing the coronavirus. But you know, it's, what's really, really interesting is that the Russians uh, have played in the public health space back going back to the Cold War. Uh, and Mark, I know you know the story about the the the, the story about the CIA creating the HIV/AIDS virus uh, in an right. effort to control the population in Africa and the population of, of to, to to wage uh, genocide against the homosexual community. The, the um, most uh, most effective Soviet disinformation campaign of the Cold War, uh, to wit, I think it was a night. Uh, no, it was a 2005 study. Of the Washington Post that said over half of uh, Black Americans believed that it was true that the uh, American government had created HIV in the lab to uh, kill Blacks and gays. Yeah, and so this is this, this is this this is they've got a long history. They they were active on Ebola. They were active on the swine flu. Uh, they've uh, gone so far as uh, again to create personas to perpetuate some of these myths. On vaccines, there's an, there's an interesting article in the uh, Journal of Public Health, uh, which documents Russian efforts to play both sides of the anti-vax, pro-vax uh, debate going back to 2014. And they are amplifying in social media legitimate voices on both sides of the debate in the United States, not because they wanted to you know, see one side prevail or the other, but they're just trying to raise the temperature a little bit find reasons for Americans to hate each other and to be at each other's throats on really basic issues because that's bad for the United States, good for Russia. They don't right. want us to compromise. They don't want us to have conversations. Uh, and again, it, it's working. It's not, you know, this is not something forced upon us necessarily by the Soviets. 
but it's a weakness we have in our own society and they're exacerbating the problem. Well, the Russians have definitely exacerbated the problem, but a lot of the problem has to do with our political culture, maybe our culture writ large, and, and as well as the political process, the system, the way that it operates with um, its heavy reliance on lots of money and the fact that lots of money really is only commanded by hysterical kind of um, far right and far left, or at least polarizing arguments. If they're not hysterical, they, they, they need to be a little bit polarizing. And, and so that, I think that is also part of the equation. You certainly can't blame the Russians entirely on our division, but they really, uh, really increased the dissension and division in our country starting in 2016 with their uh, disinformation campaign. And of course, the, the other methods that they used to to meddle in our political elections you guys know which this. haven't stopped they, they have not stopped uh, no i mean they meddled in my congressional election in new york even in 2020 in 2020 exactly yeah, yeah. 2020 um, yeah the, can i throw can i th since evelyn mentioned this let me just throw a little, little wrench into this but of course the british secret service uh interfered in the uh elections of hamilton fish senior of New York State eventually running him out of office in 1944 because he was um, uh, was an isolationist and uh, therefore, in their view, uh, a a block to their ability to drag the United States into war in 1939-1940. Uh, uh, so should we treat British interference in our elections the same way? Yes. I, I, yeah, we, we and, should, that was, and that's why there are a whole host of laws that were passed subsequently. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so this is this cuts to the quick of what makes us sovereign, and it's our ability to determine our own affairs. And if we concede our sovereignty to anybody, even a close ally, uh, that's problematic. Uh, and and so you know the 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 Russians. Uh, we, we we talked about 2016, and 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 you know back way back in the Stone Age then. I wrote an article for War on the Rocks where I said that the Russians read our Cold War playbook uh, because what we did in the Cold War, what the United States did in the Cold War, was essentially exposed to the world and to audiences behind the Iron Curtain the real flaws and the rot inherent in the Soviet system. And we didn't have to topple that system. We were just going to let, we were going to encourage those, that rot to grow and then it would crumble from within. Mm -hmm. I really think what the Russians started to do in 2016 was to expose the rot in the American system. You look at everything that came out in the, in the WikiLeaks dumps, right? The, 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 the behind the scenes maneuvers of the Clinton campaign relative to Bernie Sanders within the DNC, the amount of money that it was going to take to get an ambassadorship, a prime ambassadorship to someplace in Europe that was already being identified for prime donors by the Clinton campaign. Some of the, some of the stuff in the Podesta emails, all of that stuff to anybody is unsavory, right? It, it does not look well good for even if anybody. we say that's the way Washington has worked. That's right. and, it's just and maybe maybe it's a great warning shot across our bow, and and at least the Biden administration has seemed to take heed on that particular issue. Well, and that's why I say if you're serious about fighting political warfare with America's adversaries, get your own house in order. Right. Yeah. Clean up the corruption that exists within and within our system, because there is corruption. We don't we don't need to we don't need to hide from that. 
We need to address it. We need to root it out and we need to get our own house in order. Yeah. And it's not just the corruption. It's you mentioned the other issue, uh, the big issue, racism, you know. Right. And, and then compounding all of that, the corruption and the racism is the income inequality, that large chasm that's opened up in our society since the 1980s. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, come, I keep coming back to the idea that um, I can be completely uh, outraged and righteous in my rage. Uh, about somebody messing in the affairs of the United States. And I'll stand by that and I'll, I'll, I'll fight for that. But I, I can also concede the fact that there are still things that are broken in American society. And yeah. it, part of patriotism is recognizing that and saying, hey, but let's do something about that. I've got a tougher one for you, Jim. Is it still okay for the U.S. then to conduct uh, covert action against uh, adversaries to interfere in their election systems? Personally, I think that the United States has available at its disposal all of the tools of international statecraft, but we don't have to like it if somebody wants to use that against us. Reluctant hypocrisy, and I'm with you on that. <laughs> That's where I'm at. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I don't think we should be in the business of interfering, certainly not in democracies. Um, so, if we're oh, interfering in democracies, in, yeah, but but against autocracies, well, that that's a different story. Yeah, I mean, we have a track record of doing that. Yeah, I think that's what we're talking about, and, and we yeah. should do more of it. Yeah, but we should not interfere in democracies. Well, but what about a democracy that has become an illiberal? Like what? Well, then what, it's not a democracy. What like would we consider Poland? Well, as I was say, then, so if, if we interfere in the Polish or Hungarian elections, do they ask for Article 4 consultations with NATO? Uh, you know, this, I mean, again, the, the challenge of diplomacy, we have all these tools, but they're not always appropriate for each setting. I don't think you take such actions against allies. I have to speak out on that. And if we, if we don't think they're democratic, then they shouldn't be our allies. They shouldn't be in our, we should find a way to address the fact that they are no longer functioning as democracies if, if all of the members of our alliance minus those offenders agree, right? Well, it's about that time in our podcast where we talk about uh, our lightning round, but I, I wanna close out this session with a joke. How do you know when Putin is lying? His lips are moving. Exactly. So. <laughs> oh my God. With that, let's move into our lightning round where each of us is going to identify what we believe is the top story about democracy this week. Jim, let's start with you. Hey, before I do my story, I just want to give a quick shout out to Jack Barasa. He's been my intern this summer. He's helped with the research that's gone into some of these conversations. And so I just want to thank him for doing such great work. My top story this week. Wait, wait, clap for Jack. Clap for Jack. So my, my, uh, my big story that comes off of uh, really out of what I just said about getting our own house in order, I think the most important thing that happened this past week is the Senate passage of this bipartisan trillion dollar infrastructure bill, because it proves that, yep, uh, there is an approach to making Washington work that can get people around a table and get them to getting a deal done. And I got to say hats off to the team from the Biden administration and their partners in the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, who got this legislation done. Uh, it's, got, it's still got a long way to go in the House, and it's certainly not law yet. 
but it is a reminder that there is a way for people of goodwill to work together to address the problems that face America. Evelyn? Well, so my, my story is having trouble loading, um, but basically it's a story about, um, about Jeffrey Rosen testifying. So he's the Department of Justice official who was basically running DOJ um, after, after Bob Barr stepped down. And he was the man that um, Donald Trump put the, put the heat on, put the pressure on to basically overturn the elections. And um, the story is really about his testimony on the Hill. And I view it as a good news story for democracy, not the fact that we're discovering, unfortunately, that our president was not only planning an illegal, violent insurrection to overturn democracy, but at the same time, he was trying to use the Department of Justice to overturn the elections. But the good news aspect is that Congress is doing its job. They're conducting oversight. This is not the commission. This is not the January 6th commission. This is the regular uh, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. And so I, I feel some sense of reassurance that the truth will come out eventually, the full truth. And so, and that's really a key to maintaining our democracy. Ev, do you, is, are, are you comfortable using the word coup? Was it a coup attempt? Yes, I mean, we don't usually say that in democracies, but yes, if, if, if one autocratically inclined ruler is going to subvert democracy and take it over using force or using illegal means, sure, it's a coup. Yeah, I've been I've had a hard time until just recently with the word because I'm trying to use the using the classic sense, but I think we're there. Um, it, you could say it was a bloodless coup, but but I think if you're looking, it wasn't. It was, it was definitely bloodless. not Five bloodless. Five people died. Well, yeah. yes, yes. I, I mean, in terms of, of what the the DOJ machinations um, and what was going on inside the federal government. I mean, it was it was another track of the same effort, which was to overturn the elections and let Donald Trump continue to, to remain in office in an extra, extra constitutional, extra judicial sense. Well, my story is a little drier. Um, it's on the Census Bureau's long awaited release of the redistricting data. And of course, this is going to unleash a torrent of new state political maps in the months to come. Um, and this includes a handful of states that have early fall deadlines to enact new district boundaries. You know, these maps could really tilt control of Congress for the next decade. They're really critical to our democracy. That is that the, uh, uh, the political maps, the districts and redistricting. Uh, it also illuminates how our demographic makeup is, has changed over the last decade. And what we've seen is that uh, um, for the first time, I believe, uh, the percentage of Caucasians of whites has dropped around 8% or so, uh, according to the census data. From a political standpoint, um, there are many communities that feel that they have been undercounted, the Latino community, for example. And if you're undercounted, it diminishes your political representation. The other thing is the gerrymandering, the districts that are drawn deliberately to keep one party in power and make it difficult for another party uh, to maintain power in a particular area or to have a majority of uh, districts in the state rather than you know, making sure the entire state is competitive. Um, again, this is going to uh, impact the Congress uh, and our nation uh, for at least a decade once uh, these districts are in place. Yeah, this is an issue that, that vexes me because I, I'm generally opposed to uh, 
apolitical unelected commissions like BRAC, right? The Based Realignment and Closure Commission, where Congress basically appoints the commission to make the tough decisions because they don't want to do it. And, 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 and so we use elected legislatures to draw these congressional districts in most states. Uh, and they wind up, of course, favoring the party that's in power at that particular moment. Uh, and so on the one hand, I hate the idea of unelected commissions making decisions that should be democratically resolved. But on the other hand, I know that we're going to see nothing but ugly, gross partisan politics in drawing these maps. Well, I'm going to quibble with you. Republican. Please quibble on the on the BRAC because because the Congress still has to vote up or down. What have they ever rejected something? You can't reject anything. That's the point. You have exactly. to take the whole package or reject the whole package. Right, and so but they can still reject the whole package. Yeah, I think that they surrender their sovereignty every time they do that. Well, well it's about that it's about okay. that time uh, in our podcast. I want to thank you all for listening to us today. Please join us for the next episode of Radio Democracy. It's 4.25 p.m. in Washington, D.C., 9.25 p.m. in London, and 4.25 a.m. in Singapore. Whatever time it is, wherever you are, this is Radio Democracy. Thank you.